Hello, and welcome to the Still To Be Determined podcast, a podcast that follows up on topics from the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm Sean Farrell. I am a writer and the older brother of Matthew Farrell, who is lurking in the corner. Matthew? I'm lurking over here, Sean. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about his most recent episode, which is Thorium Explained, the future of cheap, clean energy. This was released on YouTube on June 9th, 2020. Before we get into that, I wanted to quickly mention, I have said before that I am a writer. I very rarely talk about what I write. I just kind of gloss right over that (laughs) and we just move on to the episode. But today I wanted to mention that I actually do have some, if anybody is interested in checking out some of my writing, I have a new serialized novella, which is being released on Curious Fictions. And if anybody is interested in checking that out, they can find it via my website, which is seanferrell.com. And in the section published works, you will find a link to Littered with Ellipses, which is now has uh, two parts released, and it will probably be an eight-part series. So if anybody's interested in checking that out, I hope they will do so. That's very cool. So now on to the subject of the YouTube video, thorium and thorium reactors. How is your brain feeling, Matthew? It hurts. Yeah. (laughs) I the beginning of your video when you said here's the thing we're going to keep it big picture because nuclear reaction is difficult Mm -hmm. and it make matthew brain hurt yeah it's i feel like caveman when i talk about these things to put this (laughs) into even better perspective uh to give you a sense like you're describing your experience with this and the difficulty you had with it i I'm currently wearing pants that are crusted with rice. (laughs) And the reason for that (laughs) is because I ordered some food for delivery. It was dumplings and there was rice and there was some sauce and there was, you know, lovely short ribs and very delicious food the crow magnum that is your brother decided that a paper plate was more than sufficient to handle <laughs> 50 these, pounds of food, <laughs> these good eats. And yeah. as I, I hadn't even begun to eat. I was still putting stuff on the plate and somehow thought that I could hold the plate in one hand, hold the takeout container in one hand and with my third hand spoon the food (laughs) onto the plate and for anybody playing along at home the the number of hands doesn't add up and in the process i threw about a cup and a half of rice onto my lap which would have gone directly onto the floor had i not managed to catch it all with my thighs. <laughs> These were of course pants that I literally had just laundered. So I was wearing perfectly clean jeans and caught the cup and a half of rice between my thighs. 
So I'm and assuming that meant you still could eat it because they were clean. <laughs> oh, I ate it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not proud. Uh, so again, for anybody who's interested in my writing, it's available at seanferrell.com. Um, so when I watched your video and you said thorium reactors and nuclear reaction in general makes my brain hurt. And I was sitting there scraping dried rice off of my jeans. I thought, well, then I don't have a hope in hell. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a complex, very complex topic. It's a very complex topic. I think that you did a very good job of, I don't want to call it dumbing it down. I don't think that's what you did. I think you gave a very oh. good um, <laughs> overview of of the process and what's happening. I thought it, one of the things that kept, I mean, again, <laughs> I'm going to demonstrate that you're taking all this very seriously and I'm scratching rice off of my jeans. One of the things that kept running through my head was Marvin the Martian and his Pew 238 space modulator that he wanted <laughs> to use to blow up the earth because <laughs> it was blocking his view yes. of Venus. And, um, yeah, so that kept running through my head, but the number of safety issues that you talk about, I know that you had mentioned that there was feedback around safety issues and the question being, it seems like we have to put the safety issues into context and into perspective because yes. there are responses which don't necessarily it seems like people are taking into consideration things like historically the number of people who have died as a result of right. accidents in nuclear reactors. And you mentioned Three Mile Island, you mentioned Chernobyl, you mentioned Fukushima. Yep. Um, and the number of people who literally died as, as a result of those accidents is very, very small. Yes. But uh, having said that- yeah, I mean, it, it is small, but at the same time, Chernobyl, which is the worst of those three, um, we actually don't, the, the number that's on like record looks really small, but we actually don't know if that's accurate um, because right. it's believed that even more people died because when the accident happened, people fled the area and some people actually left the, the country, left Ukraine and they went elsewhere. Um, so they may have gone somewhere, gotten sick, in Germany and died and right. it wasn't recorded as part of Chernobyl. So it's not clear how many people actually died long-term from right. the ramifications of that. It's analogous to what's going on right now with, with COVID with there's the number yeah. of deaths, which are specifically tied to somebody, a doctor saying this person has COVID and COVID is what killed them versus the people who maybe contracted COVID and then an underlying health issue is the direct cause, but the trigger was COVID or people who may have died as a result of fear of going to a hospital. Yeah. And so something else may have killed them or the overburdened hospitals not being able to provide care in the right way or EMTs exactly. not being able to do something to get to a person because of social distancing rules. And there have been all sorts of deaths that people say are under the umbrella of the event that's going on. They're linked. On. They're but linked. They, they may, yeah. yeah. But they are not, you know, it's not COVID 
that is the the death knell but it is right. it is the overarching uh umbrella over all of that so yeah so, so the, the people that were commenting saying i don't know why people get so upset uh, at these reactor meltdowns when the systems actually worked and things didn't go completely awry and a very small number of people died and i think that's kind of taking things out of context not looking at the big picture of two there's psychology uh it's terrifying and the reason it's terrifying is not from the sheer number of deaths it's also from the nuclear fallout and the reaction and what comes from that Mm -hmm. so think about chernobyl there are areas of Chernobyl that cannot be occupied by human beings for 10,000 years. And then there are other areas that can be reoccupied 100 years from now. Radiation has profound impacts on the environment for not just years, but you know centuries, thousands of years, a millennia. <laughs> so right. it's like, that is why people are afraid of nuclear reactors. So the fact that it was a handful of people that died compared to other things that have killed people, yeah, you may be right. But that's not why people have this psychological response of, ooh, that's scary. And that's the reason in uh, the Fusion video and this one where I brought up there's this psychological pushback to nuclear reactors because people are afraid of nuclear radiation fallout and what can go wrong. Uh, it, it didn't, it's not that it's necessarily rational. Um, yeah. It's just it's human nature. So it's like, that's kind of why I brought it up. Yeah. Not as an excuse for it not to do it. It's just a, this is, this is why we haven't done anything with it because people are scared of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I took it as you were describing a, um, from almost a political perspective, not political as in aligned with a certain party, yes. but political yes. as far as like, why does nobody have the political will to push this forward as, as part of a agenda to say like, here's what we should do. And as you mentioned, irrationality doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it doesn't have political power and the whole not in my backyard movement Mm -hmm. is there are people who do want nuclear power, but not near them. Yes. And there's, there's, and that goes across the board for all sorts of issues of people saying, oh yeah, we should do that thing, but not near me. Yep. And so you end up with a lot of the, the known you know, people prefer the known versus the unknown. And so they say, oh, I, if nuclear power is potentially going to be near me, I'd rather just keep burning coal. Yeah, kind of tied to the politics of it. One of the things I found the most fascinating in the research of this was why we don't have thorium reactors all over the United States. And it really comes down to the military. It was like we went the path that we went down so that we could get plutonium to make nuclear bombs right (laughs) so it's like we killed two birds with one stone we need the power and we need the nuclear weapons we do this one thing and we get both where thorium reactors is really made for just the power it doesn't really create good nuclear weapons from it which is it's actually safer in that regard (laughs) but that's why we didn't go down that path so i find it fascinating that the reason we are where we are is because of military reasons it's right i just found that fascinating too yeah, that's it's in the the Venn diagram of political issues. There was enough overlap between military and power needs to yep. drive us that direction instead of something that was clearly more fo- more focused on um, just energy production. That leads nicely into the question of 
speed of development because right. there's this whole political movement that was born out of the cold war. Clearly there was a, a, a mad dash to like, we need nuclear weapons. And so, I mean, we didn't, we weren't alive during that, that era. So the, the question of what did it feel like to suddenly have this push lead to nuclear power plants being built? Um, we weren't there for that, but there's now the question of moving forward with, can we do solar fast enough? Can we do wind fast enough? Are they enough? Do we need thorium as well. Do we need something else on top of what's already being done? But there's the question of how much political willpower is there behind all of that? And right. you mentioned to me that there were some responses which were if it's going to take a long time because we don't have an actual they don't yet have an active thorium reactor no so given the number of years that it will take to develop that and then the political will it will take to move that forward and actually being built and you mentioned presidential candidate yang was arguing we should have that by what year was it 2030 eight or something like that. It, it was basically like a decade from now is kind of what yeah. you wanted. So yeah. if you're talking about that, there's then the response that you mentioned was people saying, why bother? If it's yeah. not something that could be done now, why bother? Yeah. Well, my take on that is if you care about the environment, you're talking about trying to get off of fossil fuels, we need to do as fast as we possibly can. The problem with that is solar and wind aren't there because we don't have the energy storage. You need energy storage to make that a true long-term solution so it's like we don't have a, a good solution right now it's like we don't have enough energy storage we don't have thorium reactors we don't have uh, fusion so it's we're kind of stuck and it's basically a mad dash on all these different fronts and it's kind of like what andrew yang's point was we need to do all of them and just like we need thorium plus solar and wind plus as we're trying to get the energy storage built up because all of these things together create a mix that's going to get us to where we need to be faster than just trying to do one of them alone. And that's kind of the, that's kind of my point of view on it. It's like, I don't think there is a, we need to pick our winning horse right now. It's like, we, but we need to figure out what all the horses are, <laughs> fund yeah. them all and just like let them loose and whichever ones get there first. Great. It's like, we just need to go down that path. Yeah. I think that when I hear that kind of criticism, which is if it can't be done within the, you know, a handful of years, then what's the point of it? I th feel like part of that is born in us being cursed by our own era that we live mm -hmm. in. We live yeah. in an era of such immediate returns in so many ways that it sets up the idea that the horizon is only a few blocks away and mm -hmm. that if you know if you just move fast enough you're going to get there and i find that it's frustrating you know from from a personal perspective i i i equate it to like i i've been watching this is kind of jumping towards something we often include at the end of the, the recording, which is what have we been watching to 
you know, keep ourselves sane during the social distancing era that we're living through. And one of the things I've been watching is Deadwood, which was a program that I never watched um, when originally aired. And people are probably familiar with the fact that it's a Western uh, set in Montana and it was on HBO and I think it had a handful of seasons and then, and then it was canceled. And then after a number of years, it ended up getting a movie, which was to allow for the tying up of loose storylines because the fan base was apparently small, but very, very committed. And I'm watching it now for the first time. And one of the things that it's doing is teaching me a little bit about the history of, of the settling of that part of the United States and this is at the time what they called Indian country. Mm-hmm. And it was a settlement which was outside the control of the United States. The United States had basically pulled back their military protections over the area after Custer had so completely screwed up uh, in his final um, stand the U S military's response was we're apparently outnumbered here. So maybe we shouldn't be stretching ourselves so thin. And they pulled back to, uh, borders of States along the area, but they left a lot of that, what was called Indian country be self-governed, including settlers who were looking for gold and panning for gold, but were now outside the protection of the United States. But being outside the protection of the United States also meant that they had no, laws to worry about so this was the wild west of of lore which is you know it was kind of a history it's it's an interesting uh framing because it gives you the a little bit more of the historical detail of why was it so dangerous why were there parts of the country that were considered lawless right and there is a political argument going on as one of the subtexts of the show, which is the people who are living there anticipate that they will become part of the United States again. Eventually, the United States will come back and where they are living will become a state. They expect that. Right. But they want it to happen in the right way. They don't want certain things to happen that will give the United States the impression that this is a sovereign country because then it's on them. And so it's this view of progress. It's this view of what you need to do in order to move things forward. And it is a slow plotting pace of development. So it's, we need this to be a town. We need it to be functioning. We need to demonstrate that there, even if there isn't law, there is order in some way and order is being set by largely criminals criminal enterprise is the government of the area and there's the unknown questions around the native american population that is seen as a threat they're seen as pagans they're seen as as a horde and then there's the u.s government which is seen as a pit of vipers but they're in the middle saying like, we need to have something of value to make us seen as something worth protecting so that the right people come in to protect us, but they don't come in too quickly before we can actually get control of it. Right. So I'm watching all of this and, and I'm lining this up next to what you're talking about with the thorium reactors for this reason, their vision of progress is literally decades long. 
Yeah, absolutely. So they're taking the approach of it's fine that it's slow. We would prefer it be slow. It's good that it's taking this long. And we live in a different era where we're accustomed to, I mean, right now we're seeing it in New York City. We've moved forward in the social distancing rules into a phase of reopening. And there are lots of people being idiots and just going to large street parties. (laughs) We've got hundreds of people showing up at bars and clubs and just, and just treating it as if now we're back to normal. And that is not what's happened. We should not be there. I wouldn't take it as them saying slow is good. I would take it as them saying we have to be very deliberate in every step we take. It's not we need to be slow. It's no, it's like, okay, we've proven this works. Now we have to go to phase two and prove that it works in this situation. Right. It's that's how you make it safe. <laughs> that's how you make right. it work. So it's like, that's the, that's the path that they're going down. Right. There's, there's the pace you want and then there's the pace you have. Yes. And I think that the thing from Deadwood is that the pace that they wanted and the pace they had no different than our current era, we're not always perfectly aligned. Yeah. But they had different expectations. They did not think things would change in six months. They thought things would change in 10 years. And we are far more accustomed to a speed. And that leads to parts of the impatience that we see in um, things like a return to normal from a pandemic. The question of well if it's going to take 10 years for thorium to become useful what's the point yes and i think it's a we as individuals need to keep our eye on the horizon and remind ourselves the horizon is always a distant point yeah you got to keep your keep your eye on the prize it's it's some some things like fusion are generational some things like this thorium reactor are not generational, but it's, you know, a decade or two before we're going to see them popping up all over the place. Right. We just have to understand how long it's going to take, put it in context, and then just kind of stick with it. Also analogous, I think, to things like what do you do with, um, if you don't have reusable items, what do you do with trash? Mm-hmm. You don't stop having garbage mm-hmm. just because you don't want garbage. Yep. You move through a years long process of, well, how do we manage this? What do we do with it? What can we make things out of if not something that has to be disposed of? And that's a long, slow process because of everything from human nature to individuals not seeing the larger problem to political will to manufacturing costs to access to those goods to cost. There's so many things that go into it. So it's not surprising to me that we would see a cold war era technology being pushed by military needs. Yep. And then that really running out of steam, no pun intended. And now they're not being the political will to push thorium forward on its own, unless there feels like there's an immediate return. And I'm sure there's a lot of frustration in the in the in the circles that are looking at this research. I'm sure there's a lot of frustration around that. 
there's also some resistance in the United States specifically because of the entrenched uh, nuclear industry that exists. Um, there's resistance to change because it's going to disrupt certain businesses if we shift towards more of a thorium flow. Right. And um, then you end up looking yeah. at, at the reality of, will it be a country like India or Brazil, which has massive <laughs> yeah. power needs, also has a lot of thorium and wants their power to be cheaper and cleaner. If I was a betting man, this is one of those things where like the United States, we, we had our moment. <laughs> I feel like that moment's passed because there's other countries that are taking the lead, especially in renewables where mm -hmm. wind power is, I mean, we're actually pretty high up there on wind power, but it's like there's industries around things like thorium. It's going to be India and China. When it comes to, I'm actually working on another script for, um, there's something called flow batteries and China and Australia are just like killing it. When it comes to solar, Australia is just killing it. So it's like there are other countries in the world that are really taking a leadership role in a lot of these new industries, which is going to set them up for the future. And in our country, we have a lot of resistance because there's entrenched power that doesn't mm -hmm. want to give up. But the problem with that is the way innovation always overturns the apple cart, the people that um, had power before end up just crumbling into nothing. So it's like, right. we're, we're going to see that with our car companies, with EVs coming on. We're going to see that with countries who yeah. aren't innovating quickly enough when it comes to power sources. So it's like, it's going to be interesting to see how other countries just pass the United States by um, because they're being more aggressive with this kind of stuff. So with that being said, it seems like a good time to touch base on one of the sponsors that you've had in a couple of your videos recently has been brilliant. And during mm -hmm. the most recent um, video, you mentioned that it had been very useful for you in, in the video that about nuclear reactors and, and your ability to pick up on some of the key concepts was aided by brilliant. Yep. And I want to make clear that this podcast is not sponsored no. by Brilliant, but it got me to thinking because you mentioned that you had been dabbling in some things like calculus and other things that you didn't experience in school or didn't yeah. experience well in school. Yeah. And it got me to thinking about my current experience with high school <laughs> has been <laughs> difficult. I have a, I have a high school student, uh, he's my son and the remote schooling has it been, don't work. <laughs> it, it are been difficult. Yeah. Um, and I started wondering about something like brilliant as would it be something that you think would benefit a lot of the high school students who are struggling with concepts? Do you think that brilliant has a, um, a style that would benefit those students yes. who are struggling with concepts oh, around oh, some yeah. of this stuff? hundred percent. Like I, you know, this, I struggled in school for quite a long time. Uh, I learned well, you in are, a different you are pretty stupid. Yes. Well, aside from my stupidity, I also just learn in a different way from other people. And I, 
I'm, I've never been the kind of person that sits down, reads a textbook, and then I absorb that information. And I've had friends that are like that, where they read something and it just sticks with them forever. I have right. to hear it. I have to see it. It's like I am like a multi-sensory learner. <laughs> right. And uh, when Brilliant approached me as a sponsor, I started, they gave me a free trial so I could try out their service and I was looking at it and using it. And I was just, I was just like, wow, this is really impressive. And I genuinely, when I say, I wish I had something like this when I was in high school, that's not an understatement. I really did wish I had something like this when I was in high school because it taps into the way I've always learned, which is I don't like learning through rote memorization. It's like I do better when somebody explains concepts and the things that go into it so that I can understand the mode of thinking that you can then apply to kind of make it click for yourself. That's how right. I've always learned the best and brilliant really does that. So it's like if you have a student that's struggling in school or they learn a little different or in the situation we're in right now, they could use a little extra kind of context around the stuff, something like brilliant. There are other services that do something similar, but it's definitely worth trying. It's not that much money and it's worth experimenting with for a month and seeing how it goes. Yeah. I think it's something that I, I will be. And this was not sponsored. Into. Yeah. Again, this is not sponsored. Yeah. yeah. I don't want, I don't want any listeners to think that we're doubling down on your uh, no. sponsorship and your video. Um, it just, considering that right now um, New York city schools are, we've just entered the week that would have been the week of regents exams. Mm -hmm. So classes would have been over and students would have been spending this week reporting into school to sit down and take the regents exams and the regents exams have been canceled. And the way they're managing this last week is the same as previous week, which is, They've broken down the days by here are the courses you should be focused on. You should be working on any projects that you still owe to teachers. If you don't owe things for the classes we're suggesting on a certain day, you should be then working on other stuff. Reach out to your teachers, communicate with them, have office hours if you need to. It's This is literally the, the finish line is 15 feet away and we are trying to drag the students across the finish line. And it's been a very difficult year. My heart breaks not only for my own son, who's this is his first year of high school, and it was not it it didn't fit the shape of what anybody envisioned the year looking like. Yep. And my you know my heart breaks for the seniors who missed out on all the transition into adulthood that they normally would have experienced in their sending mm -hmm. off, you know, in moving on to the next step of their lives. It's hard for those students who'd be going on to college and they don't even know if their colleges will be welcoming them in the fall or if they will be living at home with their parents and trying to do remote learning at a college level. It For the juniors who, for them, this would be the year that is used on your transcripts to apply for schools if you're looking at college not next year, but the year beyond, mm -hmm. when, how does this impact them? And we're looking now at next year in high school, we got a tiny, tiny, tiny little hint in a email from the high school, which it didn't go into details, but it was a, it's the end of the year. It was trying to be so upbeat. It was like watching a clown 
arrive at a morgue and like like you know with the funny shoes and the horn honking in its nose and the mourners are standing outside and the clown is like i know nobody wants me but who wants to see a magic trick and this email was like it's the end of the year you're gonna have a great summer everybody's finishing up and then there at the bottom there was a tiny little note that said what to expect next year in the fall we'll be welcoming students back in groups of 50 percent yep and I was just like, what does that mean? Nobody knows yet. So does that mean half days or alternating days? It's totally unclear at this point. But I gave my son a heads up about it. I said, you know, just to let you know, this is what they're talking about. So, you know, we're headed toward you finishing. We're headed toward the summer. I want you to be able to decompress. And next year, we're all going to have to be very patient as we move on to yet another version of what remote education looks like. So then listening to your video and hearing you talk about brilliant, it's sort of like came together for me. I was just like, Oh, maybe this is something that if he can start incorporating that into his experience and maybe rely on some, something like that, that can be a, a positive backstop to, and an enjoyable one. It sounds like it's actually fun to use. Maybe something like that could be something that he would be able to experience something with science and math and whatever else they have that might be able to at least make learning a part of his day. Because right now it feels like he is looking, and I'm sure he's not alone, looking at school as a, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, what is this? And uh, I just want him to find some joy in learning. I want him to be able to have some curiosity and have and have some pleasure in it. So that's what that's what services like Brilliant do. It's like it's tapping into your own curiosity to learn and find out something new and see the world in a different way. And like over the summer would be like the perfect time to like make Introduce this part of his it. regular routine because then by the time and if you're picking courses that kind of tap into not just what he enjoys but things that he might be trying to learn about next year. Yeah, it's like it may provide enough of a little bit of a foundation to give him a head start on that stuff. Yeah, I will definitely be looking into that. And again, this was not sponsored. Not sponsored. (laughs) (laughs) So, Matt, I already mentioned that I've been enjoying Deadwood. Uh, Did you have anything you wanted to throw out real quick before we sign off as far as programming? I do. I do. Uh, I've been watching... Uh, a couple years ago, there was a podcast from Gimlet Media called Homecoming that uh, was like a radio show. It was a fictional podcast uh, starring Catherine Keener, Oscar Isaac, and David Schwimmer. Mm. And it was great. It was a great story. It was really engaging and really well produced. And they tr- they turned it into a TV show that is, I think it's on Hulu. It's or Amazon. I think it might be on Amazon. Um, it's got two seasons out already. And I, over the past couple of weeks, have watched all of season one. And it stars Julia Roberts and um, Bobby Cannavale. I think that's mm-hmm. how you say his last name. Yeah. And uh, Stephen James. It's really an exceptional show. It is, it's the thing that blew me away the most was. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he directed and wrote a bunch of uh, Mr. Robot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that show. Yes. Uh, this homecoming has such a unique, uh, cinematography and feel to the show it's got this there's something about that feels very retro it feels like a tv show or a movie from the 80s at times and i'm not talking about like kitschy 80s i mean like dramatic television show columbo from the 80s which may sound bad but it was kind of awesome and the visual storytelling techniques that they used that were so dramatic actually played a purpose in how the season unfolded by the end and mm. it was just one of those mind bending my mind was blown a little bit like because it's like oh this looks really cool it's a very clever way to do it and then by the end you're like oh that's why they were doing it this way and so it's like it's it, everything has a purpose it's so well put together julia roberts it's like one of those i haven't seen her in a lot of stuff over the past number of years mm-hmm. and it's one of those i forgot how good of an actress she actually can be. And Mm -hmm. she's astounding in this show. She's like wearing like no makeup. She looks, she looks her age and she's just doing, she brings this character to life in a way that obviously you couldn't do in a podcast, but it's just a wonderful performance, great actors, great writing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a thriller. It's a, it's just a hands down thriller. It's, it's basically about a, uh, treating uh, uh, veterans when they come back from like Afghanistan and treating them to help them with their post-traumatic stress. And it's a company that has created a treatment that supposedly is going to help them get over this. And it's just, it goes places you don't expect. And there's a right. thriller aspect to it that's really kind of nail-biting at times. It's it's really worth watching. Sounds extremely compelling and extremely timely. Yeah. It, yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to start season two, and I'm not sure where season two is going to go. Uh, right. It's 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 got new characters that are being brought in. Julie Roberts, I guess, is not in season two, but uh, what's her name? Uh, I'm looking it up. Janelle Monae is the yeah. lead in season two, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to starting it. That sounds really good. On top of Deadwood, I wanted to mention that I have been enjoying what we do in the shadows. Yeah, I just finished the first season of that. (laughs) I have now caught up with the live episodes for the second season. Uh And it is such a remarkably well done. It is in the style of The Office. But one of the things I really enjoy about it is it also kind of undercuts. It's almost a parody of The Office. Yes while being in the style of the office and i just love the performances and for a show that basically only has five people uh, it manages to do things with um compelling story the second season i won't ruin anything for you the second season has what is a lovely plot arc that lasts the entire season. So it has a development for character that I think the first season didn't have as strongly. Mm -hmm. And it also has a number of guest stars. Again, I won't ruin anything for you that makes me think that this is one of those shows that not everybody knows about, but the right people know about it. Mm -hmm. And given that it's Taika with TT, 
Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that there are a lot of people who are taking phone calls and being invited to be a part of the show who under normal circumstances wouldn't, but because the right people know about this show and his involvement with the show, I think that they are getting people to be involved with it that are surprising. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. I'll, I'll say the, it's based on a movie, which Taika Watiti wrote and starred yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, I was a little disappointed in the first two or three episodes of the show yeah. because it's basically just rehashing the movie almost exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until maybe episode three or four where it was like it started to go down a different path and mm-hmm. started to feel like its own thing. And by the end of the season, it's like it's going down places I just never expected. And the season finale <laughs> was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And got me super excited for season two. So it's, it, I, I agree, it's a phenomenal show. It's it's really something special. In the episodes that you've watched, was was the count in those episodes? Yes. 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 It took me looking it up <laughs> online to realize that the count was played by Doug Jones. That was Doug Jones? <laughs> that was Doug Jones. <laughs> I, I had no idea. And it was one of those things where I was just like, friggin' Doug Jones never plays a person. He never plays a human and he is so unidentifiable in role to role, even if you know it's him. So Doug Jones, for any of the listeners who aren't aware, is he was the merman in The Shape of Water. He was the uh, eye-handed monster in Pan's Labyrinth. He was a skeleton a rotting skeleton corpse in crimson peak he was in hellboy (laughs) he's in hellboy he is in star trek discovery as the extremely tall um alien i can't remember the character's name in discovery he's always in head-to-toe makeup and suits he never plays a person he never plays a human no and in in what we do in the shadows, he plays a ancient vampire known as the Baron. And the entire episode went by and I was just like, who was that? Who was that? And then the credits started rolling. I was like, wait a minute. Did that say Doug Jones? Was that Doug Jones? <laughs> and it was, it was Doug Jones proving he can do comedy as well. So yes, he's really good. So with that, I think, uh, we have reached the end of the episode. So let us know what you think and look for us on Twitter. You can find us at still TBD FM. You can also find me at by Sean Farrell and you can find Matt at Matt Farrell and at undecided MF. You can watch the latest of Matthew's YouTube videos at undecided with Matt Farrell. You can find the podcast at still TBD.FM. Please do subscribe. You can find the subscriptions available at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else the podcasts are available. Be sure to give us a rating, review, and share us with your friends because it really does help the podcast. The podcast helps the channel, the channel helps Matthew, and then Matthew helps me. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.